There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the Titans of Food Service podcast. This is episode number four. Today, I have an amazing guest, Julie Swift. Julie started all the way from a supermarket deli when she was 18 to become one of the leading women in food service. You are not going to want to miss this episode. We talk about everything from how she was able to rise up through very large corporations and companies to get to the top and is now leading the way for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in the food service industry. Let's jump right into it. Well, Julie, I'm, I, I'm so excited for our conversation today. And, and I'm also very grateful that you are on the Titans of Food Service podcast. I appreciate you coming on. And I know today's going to be a lot of fun. And I think there's so much that people can learn from you. You know, you've really had an, an exceptional career in food service. And uh, before we start off, how did you get into food service? Well, thanks, Nick. I, I am so flattered to be here. Thank you for having me. I love that you're doing this and I love the platform you're sharing it through. So uh, on behalf of the industry, thanks for thanks for doing that. Of course. So, uh, you know, it's funny. My, my first job in food service was in the supermarket deli. And um, I was about 18 years old and I had applied at the supermarket for a cashier position as a summer job. And the store manager said, well, I won't have a cashier position open for a couple of months, but I do have a position back in the deli. Um, and if you'd be willing to do that, then we could start you there and then move you to the front end. So I learned my first lesson in interviewing for a job, which is to ask what I would be doing, which I didn't do. And my job for two months was to cut the mold off of the cheese they sell in the deli and rewrap it. <laughs> so um, I literally came home every day smelling like rotten cheese and um, just learned probably one of the biggest lessons of my life <laughs> right then and there <laughs> that, you know, wow, I don't know if there is a job worse than that in food service, but I certainly started at the bottom. <laughs> right. Were you out of high school at this point in time when you started in the deli? Or were you transitioning into college at this point? What was happening at this point in your life? Yeah, I had just gotten out of high school and transitioning into college. And uh, my dad ran supermarkets the whole time I was growing up. So it was nothing for me to ride side saddle with him and uh, go to work with him some during the summer. So honestly, like I couldn't wait until I was old enough to work in food. And although that was my first sort of glimpse of food service, it didn't run me <laughs> off. It didn't scare me off. Like when I really started to think about, you know, what I wanted to do, it was always in the food industry. So I love the industry. I, uh, I imagine I always will. So as you went through your time at the at the deli, what was kind of your next step in, in your food service journey? Did, did you jump into a sales position or, or how did you get into, because you, you have an, just an incredible career and I'm just so curious on how you were able to, you know, get to the top, cut through all the noise and get through the top. So what was kind of your next step on your food service journey? Yeah, good question. Well, I took a segue. I worked on the retail side of the business. I got that job on the front end and then I started to move up in that side of the business to the office and I worked as a head bookkeeper in the grocery store. And from there, I went into general merchandise. I did that for a while, traveled around to different stores and stopped the drug uh, counter there, the health and beauty aids counter. And I literally found myself at one point just absolutely knowing my first love was sales. So I went to work for a retail broker in the Dallas market. Um, it was a broker by the name of Brownmore and Flint. And um, I really cut my teeth on selling. 
And I had several situations that I look back on it now and I think about how it shaped, you know, like everybody does, but it's like how it shaped the sales process. One such situation was I was really trying to work my job into a sales leader and a zone manager position. And in retail every year, there is a... Um, a big booking season for displays during the holiday season. So I had taken over Minyard's stores as part of my route. And um, I could see the people around the office sort of snickering um, about the fact that I had this one store on my route. And I could just sort of hear the whispering going on. Well, apparently there's this really difficult store director at this store. And while with all of my other stores, I could just sort of, you know, pull up to the front, go be bopping in, you know, wave to the store director or wave to the office that I was there and um, do whatever reset I had going or whatever. But I'm telling you, not with this guy. He hated brokers. And he, I know you've never heard that before, Nick, right? I've never heard that in my life. No, I've never heard that (laughs) phrase. He hated brokers. And when I walked up and introduced myself to him, he shook my hand, but he didn't look at me. He just kind of looked away. He was like, do whatever, you know. Um, So maybe two weeks after I had started to call on him, we had a big sales meeting. And my sales manager at the time said, okay, here's the bookings for you know, pre-booking all of the displays. Nick, the booking, the booking binder was this thick. Uh, wow. We represented some of the most amazing brands in the marketplace. We had all of the Heinz companies, both um, Ambient and Frozen. And I just knew that this guy was like, it was one of the biggest, it was in the Arlington area, it was one of the biggest miniature stores in the, in the whole set. And I just knew that like, this is gonna make me or break me, like whether or not I even get the promotion. So I thought, well, the first thing I have to really do is that like, I gotta establish some kind of relationship with this guy. Like I can't just walk in there two weeks from now with my big binder and say, hey, you know what, displays you think you wanna pre-order for, you know? And by now people are outwardly going, placing bets right in front of me. Oh, yeah, that book's not going to be... I mean, it was like, literally, (laughs) Julie, nobody has conquered this this guy. Right. Well, I just made up my mind, like, I've at least got to give it a shot. And Nick, I'll tell you something. One of my most defining moments in my career, I pulled up in front of this guy's store, and I had my hands at 10 and 2 on the steering wheel, and I could see myself shaking. And it kind of made me mad. <laughs> you know, I was like, sure. what are you afraid of? All this guy can right. do is say no. So yeah, I, of course. Yeah, I mean, I walked in. I had the binder under my arm, even though it wasn't time to do the booking. I at least wanted him to see it. <laughs> I wanted him to see it right. on me. So I go in and I wave at him. I call out his name. And I can see him. You know how you can feel somebody just... <laughs> just watching you as yes. you walk by. I decided to go there every single morning before I wow. started the rest of my route. And I thought, he's going to get used to seeing me. And so by the third or fourth morning, I walk in with that binder under my arm. I holler out at him. By now, he's now coming down off of his perch, which was like the office at the front. And he's starting to like look down the aisle where I am and see what I'm doing. And I'm waving at him, you know. So finally, after about a week, um, and I know I've got a week left, after about a week, and I found out that he's off on Sunday, but he worked on Saturday. I drove over there on a Saturday morning. Uh And um, I drug my two little kids in there. And I faced <laughs> up the shelves. I made sure everything was okay. We represented a yogurt company then, and he had some spoils mm-hmm. in the cooler. I pulled those spoils out of the cooler, wrote him a credit. He finally, um, on Monday morning, after all of that happened, he finally came up to me and said, you know, you're somebody I want to get to know. And there it was. I, I wasn't asking anything of him. He knew I had a big ass coming. I carried that binder in <laughs> 
day. He knew I had a big ass coming, but he also knew that I was really interested in his business and what was going on. He said, let's go have a cup of coffee. We sat sure. down up at the front and I asked him point blank, why are you so mean? <laughs> why not? <laughs> why are you so mean? He said, well, I'm not really mean, but not very many people get to find that out. Yeah. Okay. So that was really my first, the first time I sort of like stepped back and said, okay, it, it, it takes a load of confidence and if you don't have it, fake it. Um, but I never felt nervous or like, I don't know if that was like the baddest of the bad, but for right. me it was. I was a single mom with two little kids. I really needed that promotion. And I walked in, uh, let me tell you, with that book completely filled out and I slapped it on my <laughs> boss's desk. <laughs> and didn't say a word. I walked out of the room. I, I didn't take a glory lap. I didn't do any of that because you know what? I had no idea how that was going to turn out, but I feel thankful that man taught me that lesson because I carried it all the way through. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. So to answer your question about how did that get me in food service, um, I love the broker side of it. My husband and I moved to Springfield, Missouri, and um, at that time, Reckitt and Coleman was here, which became Reckitt Benkeiser, which became the French's Food Company, which became McCormick. Um, yep. So I was with them for 25 years on that journey. I went through nine interviews to get the job, and it was as, wow. as a market segment specialist. They needed someone with retail experience to help bring the club business where it was going at that time, because clubs were part of the food service division or the commercial division, as they called it back then. So nine interviews, I, I ran out of suits oh. after two. So I had to go to my I, girlfriend. I can only imagine. <laughs> but I, I've um, never heard of nine interviews before. Yeah, yeah. I, and you know, Nick, full disclosure, one of the reasons it took nine interviews is because it required a master's degree and I never finished my bachelor's. So that was really like, ah, you know, can we really go off the grid here and give her this job? Right. And she doesn't have a degree. Um, so that's why it took nine interviews. Took me wow. that long to convince him that well, my experience I, I, was more, you know, worth more at that point than my degree was. Of course, it seems like you know. I feel like with nine interviews, it, they were they were sold on you probably pretty early, but they just wanted to make sure maybe that their decision was the right one. You know, not having a, a college degree and whatnot. And uh, but nine interviews, I mean, that is very thorough. Um, <laughs> they're going to know a lot about you. <laughs> And those nine different interviews, for sure. <laughs> well, if nothing, uh, they certainly found out I was persistent. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> that is that is just incredible having nine interviews. So you had twenty five years, and you started as a market segment specialist. I and I believe you moved up quite a bit throughout the throughout the company. I think you had what, maybe seven or eight different promotions yeah. throughout that 25-year yeah. span of time. How did you, how did, how fast did you move up from level to level? And, you know, maybe what were some of the uh, successes or some of the aspects that, you know, gave you the ability to move from position to position? Yeah, it's a great question. And thank you. A lot of people would ask me, and it was really a time when people were moving from job to job, maybe every four to six years, and people would ask me, like, you know, why aren't you moving? And it was like, I'm, I'm promoting here. I'm getting different jobs. I'm getting different experience. And, you know, it was a tough environment, and I say that as a compliment. It was a rigorous and disciplined environment. And so I was able to really learn marketing. I was able to, um, I chose marketing at the first end of that because um, as, uh, as a family, it just wasn't good for me to travel during that window. I wanted to be home every evening and sit around the, at the dinner table with my family. So I had to put my first love off to the side. And I sort of considered marketing during that time pure sales. That's how I convinced myself. 
You know, this is the purest form of sales. But to answer your question, I really learned pretty early on in that role as a market segment specialist that there were a lot of jobs around the office that people didn't want to do. There were a lot of projects they didn't want to take. There were a lot of problems that needed to be solved. And I found out pretty quickly that I was good at coming up with solutions that I was good at identifying problems, sometimes even before they became a problem, and I was really good at coming up with solutions. I was also um, very focused on sort of self-discovery and knowing where my knowledge gaps were and trying to work hard toward filling those gaps and also filling those gaps with people who knew things I didn't know. So it was important to me that I surrounded myself with multifunctional teams who could teach me things I didn't know. So, you know, that was really my focus in the, in the earlier years. As I started to acquire promotions, I started to realize even more how important it is to do what's right for the business. You can right. really get, and I saw this, you know, from my dad. Uh, years in the grocery industry. Sometimes he would make decisions that I would be, why are we doing this? I know you have a very strong example in your dad. You and I have that in common. I had a very strong example in my dad, but he took the time to tell me why we were doing some of the harebrained things (laughs) that we were doing. (laughs) And there was always something behind it. So I, right. I really feel like that groomed me into being able to sort of block out, like we would get in, a, give you an example, as a marketing person, you're always working on innovation. We would get in a room and start talking about like all the different formats we could make uh, Frank's Red Hot in. Somebody came up with the idea, well, it could be like a fruit roll-up. It could be a sheet. And then when you put it under the, you know, salamander grill, it would melt and instantly become this luscious, you know, thing or whatever. And there would no doubt always be people in the room who would say, the plant can't do that. You know, we can't do it. Oh, we tried that before. We, you know, all of that. And I learned very quickly that you have to take the barriers off. You got to completely peel the guardrails off of the highway If somebody tells you no about Mm -hmm. doing something, then at least you brought forward what you believe is really right for the business. So that was my approach. It's still my approach, you know, between kind of going at it from a problem-solving standpoint, I would say I developed into a heat-seeking missile for issues and problems. And while everybody else was running away from them, I was running toward them. So I would say that was definitely something. And the other thing was, is just like my concrete foundation was really in doing what's right for the business in speaking what's right for the business. Look, if we decide we don't have the capabilities or we decide we can't, that's one thing. But if you're encumbered from the upfront by the, you know, Mm -hmm. the naysayers and the we can'ts, then you'll never really fully explore what could be something totally magnificent that delivers great returns for the business. Absolutely. I like your perspective uh, on all of that. If we could go a little deeper, you know, you said, you know, one, it's it's an asset of yours is you're always in search of new self-discovery and you knew your knowledge gaps. In your time with French's, which then became McCormick, were there mentors that you had, or I know you had your father, but what about people in your day-to-day working life or maybe people at other companies that helped you get to the next levels? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Um, Look, nobody, nobody gets to success without somebody or somebody's, you know, helping do that. I was very fortunate to have people who expected a lot out of me and believed I could deliver it. That's more what, you know, sort of advocacy and allyship look like for me. And I started to recognize that it's pretty hard for people to argue with the numbers. Like when you're in sales, you know, and I did make that transition about halfway through my career with French's. My first assignment as a salesperson was to take over corporate distribution 
Cisco Corporate, right. U.S. Corporate, Doc Foods, Unipro. My first job was to go to Houston. You know who lives there. Wow. And to cut the program in half. Cut the corporate program in half. <laughs> that is not easy to do. <laughs> so, you know, cut my teeth on that side of it. But I think, to your point, I didn't walk in there alone. I walked in there with the president of the company. I walked in there right. with my boss, who was a senior vice president at the time. We um, sat and had lunch together. We talked about our game plan. And both of those people assured me that I was in charge of that meeting, that I was in control of the meeting, and that whatever I said I would do coming out of that meeting, they would make sure that I was supported in doing it. That goes a whole lot further than a pat on the back and saying, oh, Julie, I just, I think you're a great person. You know, all of those things. So it was the right. demonstration of that advocacy and that allyship that allowed me to be sort of in my own glide path uh, they certainly recognized I looked at things differently and saw things differently than they did. And they believed in me. And that's something you really, you can't fake that. Uh, you know, when you think about authenticity in the workplace, and by the way, I count you, um, and I've, I've shared this with you privately, so I'm not just saying it as part of this podcast, yes. but yes. <laughs> I count you as one of the most authentic people I know. Um, uh, outwardly, well, thank you very much. Well, you outwardly, you are the exact person that I know personally. So that's not thank always you. easy to do, and especially not in this industry. But I had a couple folks that um, you know were willing to really challenge me in the same way they challenged my male peers. And by the time I had gotten to this point, I, I wasn't only on the food service leadership team. Right. So I really did need that um, advocacy, but it sort of presented itself in different ways than you hear companies training to in these particular times. In looking at our team, it's when you have eight players on the team and you don't put the support around them and the resources around them and then give them the latitude and the you know, the space to be themselves and to achieve their own success and go through their own failures that a lot of times if you squeeze them too much, you know, they'll leave the company or they'll go find another, a different opportunity where they do feel supported. So it's important when you have your top performers to give them the, you know, uh, the tools and ability to be successful and to make an impact, which is what it sounds like you had, you know, which, you know, opens up a lot of different doors for you as well mm -hmm. uh, to continue to, you know, not just increase your career path, but also to help better the company as well. Yeah, that's really true. Um, and I see that demonstrated throughout food service. I also see it being missed throughout food service. In terms of leadership, I really believe you have to let people see who you are in order for them to be who they are. If you're telling them like, look, I accept you wholly, I want you to bring your best authentic self to the job, and you're right. not delivering that, you're not showing your own vulnerability, you're not yep. you know, doing that, then please don't expect it out of them. Um, so I totally. think that's one of the one of the key <laughs> tenets of leadership that just has to be there. And people that are new moving into leadership role, that's one of the things that I mm -hmm. always tell them is that like, look, you're you're there, you belong there. Don't forget to be you. And with women, I actually right. see this a lot where it's like, man, the minute I get that director title or that VP title, I feel like all of a sudden I have to be somebody different. No, yes. you really don't. And, you know, I have to say, I stubbed my toe on that myself. When I moved into that food service yeah. leadership team, I thought I needed to act like the guys. You know, I thought I needed yeah. to present the same. And you know what? The reality is, you know, you kind of wake up one day and you don't recognize yourself anymore. And it's hard. It's hard to pretend you're something that you're not. Totally. So, totally. you know, you just have to remember back to, you know, that place where you felt really comfortable and confident mm -hmm. and push yourself back into that and say, 
every leader is different. Every manager is different. So it's okay to be different in that space. It's okay to get things done differently. I think it's sometimes it's important to embrace our differences. And it's, you know, it's those types of differentiators or, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of our uniqueness that makes us who we are, that makes us special, that makes us you know, great at what we do or impactful in whatever industry that we may be doing or any company we may be in. So how did you go from French's, then McCormick, and then how did you get back into the broker world? Because I know you, you had an incredible career at Advantage Waypoint, which is now Waypoint. And how did you go from food service manufacturer to food service broker? Yeah, great question. It was really a chapter in my career where I started to think about like, what's my what's next? While I was with French's for that 25 years, like I said, there were very adequate challenges to keep me sort of in the hunt and moving to that next thing and achieving that next thing. Um, Before I left French's, I had worked on the non-commercial business and developed the non-commercial channel for French's. And I'll never forget that conversation. My boss called me into his office and he's like, I got some great news. We got a really um, great opportunity for you. We'd like for you to take over all the non-commercial business. And, and, and literally French's had no focus at all. Their business was negligible, almost like didn't even register on the P&L and non-commercial. And part of that was that they had this mindset that because they were a premium brand, that sure. you know, it was just going to be a price game, and that non-commercial wasn't after premium brands. So my boss says to me, he looks across the desk at me, and he says, "Great news, you know, we're going to put you over the non-commercial channel and bring that into your right. portfolio of you know responsibility." I said, "You know, um, disclosure. Um, I don't know, you know, and I have my hands like up on the desk like this, and I don't know." anything. As long as I've been in food service, like, I don't know anything about non-commercial. And he reaches over and pats my hand and says, me neither. Right. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> okay. For, so for that next seven or eight years, really building that out and bringing it to, you know, the fastest growing channel in the company, you know, sure. increasing the profitability by three and 400 basis points every year. Wow. Um, you know, just being able to do some things that were fun to do. But right in that, you know, sort of last window, like that last year, um, as, as a member of the senior leadership team, I was very aware that we were looking to sell. So I knew that Reckitt Keyser would spin off their food business And so I started aligning with the leadership of the company to do all the things that you do when you know you're for sale. Make sure that, you know, everything's in order, that uh, it will be an easy transition for the next company. When I heard McCormick was buying French's, I, I did a cartwheel. I literally did a cartwheel, went out in the front yard and did a cartwheel. I was so excited. I knew a few of the folks at McCormick, but I also knew that its president was a female. And I um, just um, uh, count Megan Ford, God rest her soul, as one of the real trailblazers and pioneers in this industry for women. I met with Megan and their HR person um, after the company was acquired, and they offered me the job. I walked away from there. I had two weeks to think about it, and I was, you know, came home. I I talked to my husband and my family about it, and there was just something gnawing at me. There was just something missing in it, and I started to consider some of the other um, opportunities that had come my way as far as people sort of finding out that the company was selling and all of that. And one of those was the then president at Waypoint, or actually he was an EVP at Waypoint at the time, and that was Chuck Mascari. And he reached out to me, and I remember his exact words, Nick. He said, if you don't like (laughs) what's going on over there, the answer over here is yes. So I, I thought, well, wow, I've known this guy back when it was Mascarian Sons. I've known this guy for a while. I have a very deep respect for the man and um, had learned through many professional um, interchanges with him that his dad was a lot like my dad. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of had that in common. But 
One of the things as I went through this, and by the way, I declined the job at McCormick before I ever landed um, another job. And I was interviewing with another manufacturer <laughs> at the time, and it was that or Waypoint. And in the whole while, my husband's in my ear going, are you crazy? <laughs> Are you crazy? You're going to go back right. to the broker world? Are you crazy? So I know. I, I don't know why anybody would do that. <laughs> so first off, I'm a big believer in the broker model. I love seeing these groups of people that get behind these brands. They are the front line. And man, every day that um, that I was in that role, it was that front line that I knew was right. holding up the entire company. Seller heroes, truly seller heroes through the pandemic, through all of it. But I sort of warned Chuck. I said, you know, if I'm going to come over there, I can pretty well see from my vantage point, there aren't a lot of people who look like me over there. And uh, are you ready to do something about diversity, equity, and inclusion? And um, he said, we'll do it together. So that's really what made me make the move. Um, and of course, he left the company about, I think, a year, year and a half later. He went on to become president of Waypoint, uh, which I certainly cheered that on. But, you know, at the end of the day, I look at the collective of my career, and I think that those situations where I wasn't invited to the meeting, I was... I, I wasn't, I was talked over in the meeting. I, I brought up an idea in the meeting and someone else five minutes later who doesn't look like me presented it and everybody loved it. You know, they're just, just sort of those little things began to nick away at you after, no pun intended, Nick, uh, but nick away <laughs> at you after, after years. And so totally. I really felt like, I know when I went into that company, I really felt like, I think I can make a difference in this space. Like, I think I can um, be successful. I think I can do what's right for the business. And it also, I mean, come on, the broker world is fantastic. It's a 360 view of the entire industry. It's distributor, it's manufacturer, it's right. industry associations, it's operator. I mean, it's the whole thing. And if you really, really love the industry, like I really, really love the industry, then that was like being right. in a candy store, you know, like just being able to see that whole scope. So that was really it. I knew I wanted that chapter, that next chapter to be different. And right. I start, I really started to sort of feel like, well, look, I found my way in maneuvering the landscape I'm in, but I really need to do something to give back. The industry is not where I think it should be even today. It's an amazing industry. It's it's just it's just offers so much opportunity, but it's not where it needs to be. So I made up my mind I was going to do something about that. <laughs> One way or the other. <laughs> When you look back at your time in the broker world and in the manufacturer world, what are what are you hopeful for in the future for the for the food service industry? What are the things that you feel maybe in five years or ten years or somewhere down the line that will be that's different today, but it, it's going to be a big positive and a, a big change, but it'll be different and but good for our industry as a whole. I absolutely know what that is for me or what my vantage point on that is. And it is really a more equal industry than it is today. An industry where, you know, companies are not having to put diversity, equity, and inclusion programs together in order to build safe and productive environments where everyone right. can be successful. So, um, and, and that will be, that will be fantastic, but it will also be very game changing. And if you look at DE&I as a key business imperative, and you think about like, gosh, the statistics are out the wazoo on why, why, totally. why the business case for it, but then why don't people do it? 
Like if it's that great and it, it, it's such a good thing to do for the business, then why don't people do it? And I know I've shared this with you. They don't do it because it's hard. Yes. It's hard. And, you know, you have to look at things differently in order to really execute that. So to answer your question very directly, it would be a more diverse equitable, inclusive environment where everyone feels they can belong. I love that. If we were to drill down a little bit deeper on that, for companies that do have a DEIB program or, you know, believe for, or what is the benefit on the employee side and what's the benefit on the employer side? And how do those companies look different from those companies that do not have a DEIB focus? Yeah, so... Look, I think that this journey is so different for every company, and it requires an individual journey. The companies that I've seen be most successful with this start at the tippy top. They start at the very top of their company, and they make sure their Mm -hmm. leadership is fully, not only on board, but that their leadership has adopted, I call it adopted and adapted. And, you know, that's hard. But once the leadership does that, then I won't say all the pieces fall in place, but I will say that it becomes a very clear path to get there. If the leadership team is not, has not been through the process and does not, that's where it's sort of like they push it to the next level of management like they do every other key business imperative. And the truth is, this has got to be owned by the CEO. It's got to be owned by the president. And by being owned, I mean, they have to do their own discovery. They have to do their own self-awareness. They have to really go through the process. So what an employee can expect is an employee can expect to bring their authentic self to work to be Mm -hmm. invited to the table, to be listened to and respected at the table, and to feel like they belong and are making a difference for that company. And that happens on an individual basis. So you can see that there's not like one big paintbrush you can take and paint this in this space. And that's why I love to grab companies that are on the grow, because then they can really get in and see what a difference this can make one employee at a time. For the company, what they can mm-hmm. expect is some freaking loyal employees. They can expect that those employees and associates are going to go the extra mile because they feel appreciated. They can also expect to get the best and brightest ideas Mm -hmm. and thinking because now I feel safe in this space that I'm not worried about making a mistake, saying something stupid, you know, not being able to dial it back, whatever it is. It is, it is literally like the most beautiful thing when you see it. Yes. It's, it's truly that no one has to give up anything in order for someone to belong Everyone gains, but there are situations where you think about some of these senior leaders that that I've witnessed personally that sort of have a little turf. And they're like, oh, you know, that's my turf. I don't want to, you know, I want to control, you know, it's like leadership 101, you know, like Mm -hmm. pull off the rip off the band-aid, like get in there and be the good person that you are and let those people see who you are and how you operate. Um, So, you know, I, as you can see, I've got a lot of passion around this, but I've seen it work and it's just a beautiful thing. I love that. I was recently at the 2022 IFMA President's Conference and there was a lot of discussion and a few of the keynote speakers spoke about the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and how it will be, uh, you know, an even bigger initiative going into 2023. Mm -hmm. There was even the president of Cisco, he had a 30 to 45 minute uh, panel discussion, and it was all around this exact topic and how at Cisco, you know, the largest 
food service broker in the United States, mm -hmm. how they view this as a huge imperative, a, a huge point of differentiation and something that will be very important for them in the future. Mm -hmm. They look they looked at, you know, certain markets and looked at the overall demographic of the people uh, of just the general population and they then looked uh, internally at their sales team and the, the people working in that market and they found <laughs> that it it didn't match. <laughs> it, it, and so they said, you know, that's an issue and this is something that we want to change and this is something we want to lead the charge in. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is just I mean, you are on the forefront of it and definitely you know, somebody that I've learned a lot from in this aspect, even looking at my own company, it's sure we have people of color, we have women, but do all of them, how can we make sure that all of them have a seat at the table and have the opportunity mm -hmm. to get into a leadership role or a management role and achieve anything that they want to achieve? And I think you also, you changed my perspective of, I've, I've always said, I want to hire the best person, but mm -hmm. it's also externally making it so that others feel like I can come to this to Portillo Sales and Marketing. I, I, I know I'll feel supported. I'll have the opportunity to reach whatever level that I want to go to. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's something that, that, that's super important to us and uh, something that we're, we're trying to improve on for sure. So why don't you tell me, what is the Food Service Women's Alliance? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. I'm so happy you ask. <laughs> So this is a little bit of a sneak peek. So we're um, not out quite yet in, in the full force of an official launch, but Food Service Women's Alliance is really an organization that I feel is very needed in food service. It really fills the gap in a couple of different ways. Um, this is an organization that I founded and have put together a board a very diverse board. I know there's no surprise mm -hmm. for you there. Yep. But um, really to address some of what we all saw happening in the food service industry. One is that there are these great organizations out there like Women's um, Food Service Forum. And next up, that companies really get behind. But what happens is that, that companies choose who's going to go to the conference or who's going to get their membership paid for. And there are right. a lot of women who just have to wait to the next year and hope they get chosen. So that's kind of one piece of it is how do we bring yeah. very needed resources to women and people who are gender marginalized um, as well? And how do we bring the resources they need in order to take control and take autonomy over their career, their advancement and their success? that needs to be owned individually by each um, person. The other piece right. of it is, is how do we disrupt the industry a bit and help bring companies along in this space? Mm -hmm. The number one thing that I've seen in companies is the fear factor. The fear they're going to do it wrong. The fear the middle that they step into the arena, they're going to be judged or they're going to be under the microscope whatever that is. And the truth is that, that true growth can't happen without vulnerability. And so they do have to be vulnerable in that space. I'm, I'm so thankful this was a topic at the President's Conference. I had a conflict this year and wasn't able to go, but I heard from two or three people, as well as posts such as yours, that this was going on and it will definitely help in this space. So we'll be soft launching in um, December. And for a shameless plug, it's foodservicewomensalliance.com. And you can go and learn everything about it. It's a no fee for membership kind of thing. And uh, mm -hmm. very intentionally, uh, the board has developed this to a point where we're not willing to develop it any further until we get membership on board. We're really building it for them. So we have to make okay. sure that we're listening to them in what they need. Of course. Nick, I can tell you that a week doesn't go by that my inbox on LinkedIn um, doesn't have at least one or two women coming to me saying, how do I or this is happening to me, what do I do? Like, I love this company, but I know I'm being paid 25 or 30% less than my colleagues. And wow. sometimes it is just walking through and talking through those things to give them the mm -hmm. courage 
to hold the company to the standards they're asking for. That's not about going in and beating somebody about the head and shoulders. It's about just asking a couple of questions. Like, could you feel empowered to ask the question, what is our company's stance on paid equity? Then be real quiet and listen to the answer. And then are you ready to ask the second question, which is, may I ask for a review of my pay in relation to my male counterparts? It's just two questions, you know? So that's just an example. But what I find is the need is really there for community. And if you have to pay to be part of that community, then there are organizations you can go to. And we're not here to duplicate any of those services. Matter of fact, we're here as an incubator to sort of sponsor women into those. And, you know, I think back, you know, Nick, my own journey. And I think about my son, you know, was I think in the eighth grade and my daughter was in the seventh grade and I had another in the sixth. So they they were one grade apart. My son had his his eyes on these Air Jordans. And he wanted them so bad. And I remember that year, I made a decision between Air Jordans or WFF. And I'm sure you don't have to guess which one of those won. (laughs) (laughs) So it's that. It's not necessarily that, oh, I'm low income. or It is literally that, please trust me when I say, I can't do it on my own this year. And so some of that is in my career, one of the things I established is sort of a a one for one. So one of the companies that I work for sponsored me into Next Up and they paid for my membership into Next Up. So I created a program there where I gifted my membership to someone else that was coming up in the organization and I paid for my own. And I found that there were a lot of other senior leaders who were willing to do the same thing. So it's about mm-hmm. putting the ask out there and you know, asking another someone who's been successful in that space to raise their hand and to gift that over to someone else. So in a nutshell, that's, that's kind of what it is. Our tagline, our tagline is paving it forward for all women in all stages of their food service that. career. So this is a place where we intend to pave it forward. And um, we really intend to disrupt the industry, but in a very, very positive way that I think people can get on board sure. with. How can individuals or corporations partner with or collaborate with or get involved with the Food Service Women's Alliance? Yeah, great question. So there is a membership form on the website that I just mentioned. Okay. Um, so foodservicewomensalliance.com for my second shameless plug. <laughs> Um, but um, there is a membership form on there. And there's also a contact us to ask questions. So if you would have any interest in that, that's where you would go to either, you know, become a member or to say, hey, I have questions about this. But I want to be very clear about something because you've asked about it. And that is that Food Service Women's Alliance is not taking sponsorships. And um, I had someone just ask me this morning, excuse me? <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah. <laughs> because what, what we find is that companies step forward with support, with the best of intentions. But sure. what they tend to do is sort of expect out of that organization what they really need to accomplish in that space. We just can't be beholden to companies we've got to be beholden to our members. So like, for example, Nick, if you were to say, Julie, I would love it if you and two board members could meet with my executive leadership team and spend an hour telling us the kinds of things and the kinds of feelings you had when you were microaggressed over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, We could say, hey, we would be happy to do that. And we would ask you for a gift of this much for that service. So we could certainly do things like that. But my fundraising committee is coming up with all kinds of ideas about how we're going to fundraise. And none of them are about charging memberships or asking for sponsorships. It's about really getting something in return. And I think what you're going to see as the website evolves, there's a resource section there. We want to reach out to companies and sort of let companies know, what does this journey look like? How can I get on this path? Because honestly, 
it doesn't matter where you are in this journey. It just matters that you're on the journey and that you're moving forward. Um, Everybody's going to go at their own pace. But if we can sort of normalize that for the industry, then, Mm -hmm. you know, we can know that we're providing something that, you know, just like you said, hey, you taught me something about this. The resources are, the resources are everywhere, but it's kind of like when you are sitting face to face with someone that you trust and respect, um, you can have that conversation and you know you can have it openly. That's much more impactful than, you know, Googling something and reading it. So there are all kinds of resources there, but the board itself will become a resource in that space. That is fantastic. And I'm so happy for you. And I know this is going to be a great uh, next chapter. When you look back on the food service career that you've had up until this point, and you know, mm-hmm. getting to the point of launching the Food Service Women's Alliance, what is maybe a, a moment or two that you look back and think this was a defining moment for me or something that really shaped who I am or who I've become as a person? Yeah. So like a lot of women, there are probably more negative things that shaped me than there are positive. But the good news is it didn't make me a different person. It made me more determined to be the person I am. So my experiences over the collective of my career really galvanized me in two two main things. One was that I wanted to start Food Service Women's Alliance. The second was that I didn't want to work for a corporation. I wanted to go out and hang my own shingle and do my own thing. So that's what I did. I started Julie Swift LLC. Being Mm -hmm. a DEI accelerator is one leg of that three-legged stool, and the other two legs really bring in my experience from being a broker, my experience from marketing, my experience from sales. So, But to Mm -hmm. me, it's like I made a decision really early on. I wouldn't do business in either of those other two areas with companies that are not on this journey. I'm sorry, I'm just not interested. And it doesn't matter if you're in kindergarten in this space, I don't care. If you're a newborn (laughs) baby in this space, I don't care. If you're committed to it, then I'm gonna get on board and I'm gonna help you get there. Because the reality is you're not gonna be as successful in these other spaces in your broker integration or your broker effectiveness or you know building out a new sales funnel. You're not gonna be as successful if you don't adopt DE and I in that space and certainly the B, which is really important in that. So I think to answer your question, that's what's really galvanized me in both of those spaces is not being willing to change who I am, not being willing to let those, you know, instances impact me in a negative way to allow it to fortify me and galvanize me in my approach toward what I wanted that next chapter to be. I love that. That is just fantastic. And Julie, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. And people are going to get a lot of value out of this. There are a lot of people that look up to you and, you know, aspire to be like you. And so I just Thank you so much for you know going deep and, and sharing with me today. Thank you so much. Sure, you bet. Well, thank you for that incredible feedback. I'll absolutely take it. I accept it and receive it, and I'm better for it. So thank you for that. And also just, Nick, thank you for, for being an advocate and an ally and a voice. We need more like you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks so, again. Th- thank you, Julie.